Hello City Roaders, Dallas Rogers here. And today, something a little bit different for you. An audio essay on real estate speculation, global finance and urban planning. The conversation broadcast a short version of this audio essay, but today we're broadcasting it in full. So put your headphones on, sit back and enjoy. We're recording this essay on air from the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, who have practiced their sovereignty and law in this place that is known as Sydney for countless generations. We acknowledge their time-honored and continuing care for the country, and in so doing, pay respect to their ancestors and old people, their elders present and future. It is upon their land that we undertake our research on cities and urban life and it is the Aboriginal custodianship of country that is the context of all contexts for urban scholars in Australia. From The Conversation, this is Essays On Air, where we bring you the best and most beautiful writing from Australian researchers. Today, Alastair Sisson and Dallas Rogers from the University of Sydney narrate their 2018 Thinking Space essay, which was written with Chris Gibson from the University of Wollongong for the 100th anniversary of the journal Australian Geographer. Alastair, Dallas and Chris revisit Maury Daly's classic 1982 book, Sydney Boom, Sydney Bust. Australian cities are awash with construction activity. From Collingwood to Cogra, Marrickville to Newstead, every passing month seems to bring with it a new, sold-off-the-plan high-rise apartment tower. Real estate, it seems, is the true national sport. Australia now hosts the world's most active market for securitised home loans and has the world's second highest and rising levels of household debt. And there are reportedly more cranes in the East Coast capital cities than the entire continent of North America. And with the cranes and high-rise towers come social problems and no respite from affordability crises. We see overcrowded schools, longer working hours to pay off mortgages and worsening homelessness. It's perhaps no surprise then that in recent polls, densification and housing affordability are among the issues of most concern to Australian voters. The debates about land and housing crises in Australia are nothing new. And the languages that have formulated around the land and housing boom and bust over the last 200-odd years are fabulously revealing. One of the first examples of an anti-land speculation measure appears in 1812, when Governor Macquarie inserted a clause into each colonial land grant that forbid the resale of the granted land for a period of five years. Stephen Roberts writes in 1924 that Macquarie had found as very prevalent a practice 
the obtaining of grants for the sole purpose of selling them. Toward the end of the century, in 1889, Harold Sparks was reported in a Sydney newspaper to be a victim of the land boom. The cause of insolvency is given as land speculation. By the turn of the century, in 1898, George Sutherland was waxing lyrical in a book chapter entitled Land Booms, under the subtitle City Investments. City land booms have always been a snare of the people of the Australian colonies. Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide have each been in its turn badly smitten by the mania for gambling building allotments. But the memories of commercial disaster soon wear off, and when another spell of buoyant, confident hopefulness and extravagance takes possession of the community, the same wild speculation and the same inevitable collapse of credit ensues. These booms were only repetitions, on a larger scale, of what had already taken place repeatedly from the very earliest colonial days. In 1842, both in Sydney and Melbourne, business was so brisk and town properties passed from hand to hand so rapidly that almost everyone seemed to be making a fortune. Revisiting Daly's book at this point in Australia's land and housing history seems timely for two reasons. First, we seek to illuminate Daly's ideas to show their continued relevance today. Daly documents how land and housing booms, bubbles and busts have been continually creating and destroying the fortunes of the colonisers since soon after the founding of the colony. The overwriting of Aboriginal people's land management practices with white colonial systems of land management didn't result in a financially stable system of land and housing management. Rather, it set in train a process of land and housing booms, bubbles and busts that are better understood by their circular continuity, rather than as a set of ruptures that this language seems to suggest. This is the central point of Sydney Boom, Sydney Bust. Second, we'll retrieve from Sydney Boom, Sydney Bust insights that will benefit contemporary urban scholarship today. It was a book that was in many ways ahead of its time. It anticipated the recent academic work on the financialization and globalization of real estate. It was also critical of urban planning being used as a tool for guiding, perhaps even driving, property speculation, when it should be used as a mechanism for creating a more just or socially equitable city. At the heart of Sydney Boom, Sydney Bust is a discussion about how global capital, particularly within the financial services sector, fortified urban property and infrastructure development from the 1850s to the 1970s. And the role of global capital in landed property in Australia has a long history that stretches back to the founding of the colony. In 1804, Governor King lamented that the overproduction of agricultural produce in the colony was just as difficult to manage as underproduction. And Stephen Roberts writes in 1924, In the last few years of King's rule, the Isle of France, Tahiti and the outlying settlements were all considered as possible markets. So agricultural production, 
as a process for extracting wealth from the land was linked soon after the colony's inception, at least in the mind of Governor King, to the colonial global economy. And it's been a central motif of Australian land politics ever since. Daly takes up the connection between local land and global capital markets in earnest from the 1950s. But he engages substantially with the idea from the mid-20th century. Without using the term, Daly's account preempts the contemporary scholarship about the financialization of housing and urban development. He suggests that the responsibility for the boom lay more with the financiers than with the property developers who were, and perhaps still are, often called to account in the public debate about housing affordability. The mining boom of the mid to late 1960s, Daily writes, expanded the profile of Australia within the international business community. Mining's investment costs which was another modality for extracting wealth from the land, were thought to be beyond the capacity of Australia's fairly primitive capital markets. Foreign banks and finance companies emerged in the capital vacuum and began funding mining developments in Australia. With access to the growing euro-dollar market, Daly argues that the Australian banks and bankers were captivated by the syndication of foreign banks, which were often drawn from several countries and their increasing scale and increasing sophistication allowing for the financing of large projects. As foreign capital flowed into Australia, Australia's capital markets were further enmeshed within the international system, deepening the nation's embeddedness in the global economy. Sydney, where the banks and financial companies were typically headquartered, became an important global node in a network of international financial centres. The city's economy and built environment were transformed as manufacturing and retailing struggled and the financial sector expanded, particularly in the CBD. Office towers and high-rise apartments proliferated and real estate became a third modality for extracting wealth from the land with global finance. With the mining boom fading in the latter part of the 1960s, which is a recurring narrative in the Australian minerals sector, and a contraction in the manufacturing sector, Daly says, too much money was chasing too few investment opportunities. Property was one of the few avenues to which syndicated global capital seeking a local investment could turn. The property boom began with commercial real estate in the CBD in the 1960s, before filtering through commercial and residential real estate throughout the city later in the decade. The financiers didn't simply facilitate other firms' growth, they grew substantially in their own right, further fueling the boom that they were financing. By the early 1970s, and with the help of the property market, Daly writes, Finance houses had moved from relative obscurity to hold over 26% of the Australian credit market with an estimated value of $17 billion per year. The supposed security of real estate investment led to the overproduction of commercial real estate, largely in the form of office space, which in turn suppressed rents. 
increasing construction costs, in part due to social movements upon which Daly scarcely dwells, led to a diversification of investment, and commercial real estate activity was pushed into the residential sector. Daly argues that this transition from commercial to residential real estate investment both diversified the real estate actors and helped to produce the mum and dad real estate investor. The finance companies lent to a vast range of people and were ultimately responsible for the acceleration in the rate of inflation of land values in Sydney in the early 1970s. They provided most of the funds which enabled property developers to assume high gearing ratios and to compete outlandishly with each other for land parcels. Soaring prices brought rising profits and large turnovers for both financiers and developers, and bred a sublime optimism which allowed even higher gearing ratios and more unstable financial arrangements. The jangle of profits brought more peripheral groups into the development field with estate agents and solicitors, the middlemen of the industry, leading the way. The semi-professionals were followed by the rich amateurs, doctors, dentists and businessmen eager for a share of the profits. The rich were succeeded by the would-be rich, the confidence men and the gullible, whose backgrounds varied from farmers to teachers to tea ladies to gamblers. The finance companies funded them all. Sources of foreign capital also evolved as the boom mutated into residential construction. British firms had historically been the predominant sources of foreign capital, and they were certainly at the forefront of the initial period of investment in commercial office space construction. But Asian firms and investors gradually became more prevalent too, as increasingly riskier sites became available. And this heightened the cultural politics of foreign capital and unsettled the white colonial power base, a point which we'll return to later. Manuel Albers writes that with financialization, The risks that were once limited to a specific actor in the production consumption chain become risks for all of the actors involved in a specific industry. Such was the case with Sydney's subsequent property bust. Between 20 and 30% of the investment in finance companies were made by public companies, institutions and superannuation funds. The remainder was subscribed by the general public. The victims of the corporate failures therefore included tens of thousands of ordinary people and in a number of cases, life savings were wiped out. In terms of housing, better urban planning should prevent the construction of too many unaffordable, low amenity, inaccessible dwellings. Daly exposes the urban planning system as a policy toolkit that's been captured by developers and recalibrated to drive the commodification of land through subdivision and speculation. An insight that remains ever true today. This is a radical departure from seeking to use the planning system to provide housing that might lead to a more equitable city. Daly showed how urban planning was enrolled into the service of private property, 
and subsequently pushed housing via rezoning and subdivision towards the city's fringe. The urban renewal led to speculative developers placing more housing into the housing system than this system could deal with. And a land and housing boom quickly shifted course towards a bust. Urban planners scrambled to manage the consequences of the speculative development by providing, in one example, public housing in sites that were left over, or by reclaiming the sites of failed projects. In Woolloomooloo, as daily recounts, a suite of commercial construction projects were proposed to provide office space for 90,000 workers, but failed in the face of opposition from organised labour and residents. The New South Wales Housing Commission stepped in to purchase the land, but were forced, following a High Court decision, to pay 125% of their initial offer because the area had been rezoned to the highest density zoning. In terms of strategic planning, the 1968 Sydney Regional Outline Plan proposed a growth corridor strategy for the city and was dubbed the punter's guide by developers and speculators. And any uncertainty about where and when to buy land was clarified in this plan. Even seemingly benign activities such as the provision of new water infrastructure was read like a map to a speculator's paradise. The historical expansion of Sydney's railway network is emblematic of this contradiction within urban planning. The expansion of the railway networks in the 19th and early 20th century produced new wealth for those living along the rail network and the developers that sought them out. The new rail and tram networks to Hurstville in 1884 between Hornsby and St Leonard's in 1890, from Ashfield to Belmore in 1895, as well as to Mossman in 1897, and Chatswood in 1908, and then Lane Cove in 1909. All of these were accompanied by land rezoning and subdivision, speculative land purchases and a rapid increase in land prices. Daily writes in 1905, the average price of land in the Belmore-Bankstown area was £111 per hectare. But with the extension of the railway from Belmore to Bankstown in 1909, this rose to £370 in 1910 and £421 in 1913. While the expansion of the public transport system produced social benefits, it simultaneously produced social disadvantage through the drastic increase in land values, which were captured by a few landholders and then developers. Daly goes on to discuss the Sydney Region Outline Plan and the Betterment Tax, a precursor to the contemporary discussion about value capture on land value increases that result from transit-oriented development. So urban planning fueled rather than slowed speculative development. With the urban planning documents and maps signalling to the developers where they should purchase land and the anticipated windfall. Contemporary parallels include the recent strategic planning of growth centres, priority precincts and growth corridors. And attempts to harness value uplift on public land to finance transport infrastructure in Parramatta and along the Bankstown line in Sydney. Current land banking, 
unsolicited proposals that preempt rezonings, and aggressive land assembly tactics in individual suburban streets are the latest iterations of the same process. But strangely, what Daly doesn't talk about is colonisation. The colonisation of Australia is not an historical event of the past, but an ongoing process that merely began with the arrival of the First Fleet in 1788. Stephen Roberts again from 1929. A new policy of 1804 meant a rational and progressive control of land policy, with allowance for the first time being made for expansion. The government desired to group settlers in townships or shires of up to 30,000 acres, with farms radiating round centrally placed towns. The colonial frontier pushed across the continent over half a century, a slow and often violent metaphorical line that would eventually dispossess Aboriginal people of their land. In the end, writes Henry Reynolds, the settlers were engaged in the forcible transfer of the most productive land rights across the continent. It too was a transaction of global significance involving the seizure of control of one of the world's greatest land masses. Daly's analysis indirectly connects with this debate from the 1850s. By exposing the predominance and influence of British foreign capital until the latter stages of the boom in the 1960s and 70s. For example, in the first half of the 1880s, Australia received 40% more funds from the United Kingdom than were received from the United States, and 77% more than from Canada. British investment rose by 54% in the second half of the decade, and Daly writes that the Sydney of the early 1880s was a paradise for speculators where money was plentiful because it could be employed at twice the prevailing British rates of 35 to 5% and where demand could be stimulated by substantial immigration. British capital and bodies, and those of other territories of the British Empire, were central not only during the early decades of the establishment of the Australian colonies, they were central to its maintenance and development over the next 200 years. The global movement of foreign white bodies and financial capital comprised some of the foundational components for building the property-owning democracies within these settler societies, where it became, writes Daly, citing Phillips and Co. from 1886, The duty of every man to have a home of his own. The home is the foundation of the nation. This remains a powerful discourse today. But within this analysis, Daly exposes the centering of the city itself in the land claiming process. Because as the purchase of land was financed by the city-based banks, the receipts from these processes were redirected back into the cities and deposited in the urban financial institutions. So the control of agricultural lands was gradually transferred to city-based interests, which spurred on and financially underwrote urban development. What's striking about Daly's analysis, then, is that despite looking towards early Australian history to understand the origins of a property system that is marked by boom and bust, 
Daly largely overlooks the foundational point that settler colonialism is the context of all contexts when it comes to land and housing in Australia. Ultimately, Daly locates the cause of boom and bust in, and I paraphrase him here, the extreme openness of Australia to the world capitalist economy and to the demands of capital, labour and trade associated with this and the inherent jerkiness of the capitalist mode of growth. But with the benefit of settler colonial hindsight, this is perhaps an unsatisfactory colonialist diagnosis. But read alongside recent critiques of settler colonial land and housing by scholars such as Libby Porter, Daly's book still provides a compelling rebuttal to the presentist narrative that represents boom and bust as short-term and historically exceptional ruptures within an otherwise stable system of land and housing. Daly shows that it is the system itself, rather than any ruptures to it, that reproduces land and housing inequality. And Daly concludes his chapter on subdivision and speculation with a diagnosis of the city that this system reproduces. It's a diagnosis that will no doubt resonate with contemporary listeners today. At the end of it all, the city had sprawled even further. Services were even more inadequate. The young and the poor were relatively worse off. Investment funds, which might have been put into production or socially useful activities, had been dissipated, and millions of dollars of small investors' funds had been lost as sharks and charlatans grew rich. essay on air was audio recorded and edited by Dallas Rogers. You can see a full list of audio credits on our website at theconversation.com.